transmitting from the Mojave Wilderness in Joshua Tree, California. Now is the time for Desert Oracle Radio, the voice of the desert. Night has fallen on the American desert, and that means it is time for Desert Oracle Radio, and it's a much cooler night than we have been able to recently enjoy. Summer is almost gone. You can leave the windows open at night again without waking up crying. That's always nice. And at the Goldstone Deep Space Antenna Station, located in a lonesome and quiet bowl in the mountains, midway between Barstow and Badwater, there is some sadness tonight, but there's also pride and joy because one of the greatest space science missions in our brief history of exploring the solar system came to an end on this very morning at 4.55 a.m. Mojave time. That's when contact was lost with the Cassini spacecraft as it plunged as planned into the churning atmosphere of Saturn. Goldstone is one of three deep space antenna stations spread around our planet, placed 120 degrees apart. As the world turns, the signal from Cassini passed over from one antenna station to the next set in quiet open space here in the California desert and west of Madrid and southwest of the Australian capital, Canberra. These isolated antenna complexes take in a steady stream of transmissions from our far-flung robotic correspondents, including the Voyager probes, the Mars Express, the Mars Odyssey, and until this morning, Cassini, ending a mission that began 20 years ago of its launch back in 1997. Cassini reached Saturn in 2004 and spent nine years in close company with the ringed planet and its many strange moons, moons with plumes of water and snow, lakes of liquid methane. There may well be life on these moons, especially in the water seas beneath the rocky crust. And to protect these biospheres, Cassini was deliberately piloted into Saturn itself, burning up so that it would not infect these mysterious moons. The final signal was not heard at Goldstone, which was turning toward the sun with the rest of the California desert by then, but at NASA's Deep Space Network antenna complex in Canberra, which was facing mighty Saturn when Cassini was the subject of assisted suicide. It was a grand mission by NASA, the European Space Agency, the Italian Space Agency, and of course the Jet Propulsion Lab at Caltech in Pasadena. An interesting thing about Cassini, the famed astronomer, born in Genoa in 1625, is that his first field of study was not astronomy, but astrology. Love of one led to the other. We are rarely reminded that many of the most 
storied names in science and invention. Isaac Newton, John D., Roger Bacon, Alexander Graham Bell, Thomas Edison, and of course Jack Parsons, the occultist and founder of the Jet Propulsion Lab, were alchemists and magicians. Jack Parsons grew up in Pasadena with a wild and questing mind. He was building small rockets as a child, and he would become one of the crucial innovators of rocketry. But his interest in and practice of ritual magic led to his ouster at JPL and Aerojet, which were his creations more than anyone else. And in 1945, he found himself free to perform his magical rituals full-time. His frequent partner was none other than L. Ron Hubbard, who had his own career cut short in the U.S. Navy and shared Parsons' interest in science fiction and sorcery. For reasons still in dispute today and with results that are difficult to prove but do make an interesting argument for themselves, Parsons and Hubbard began a long ritual they called the Babylon Working. It is beyond the scope of a family program on the radio to go into great detail here, but the important part is this. The ritual was reportedly completed in the Mojave Desert on January the 18th, 1946. A completion that would be verified by the appearance of the entity Parsons and Hubbard called the Scarlet Woman. When they returned to Pasadena, she was there waiting, in the form of the artist and muse Marjorie Cameron I returned home, Parsons later wrote, and found a young woman answering the requirements, waiting for me. While she enjoyed the bohemian scene at Parsons' Pasadena Magical Lodge on Orange Grove Avenue, but she was not originally aware that she had apparently been summoned by ritual magic. Only when she reported her sighting of a luminous disc, possibly the first sighting of the modern flying saucer era, did Jack Parsons and L. Ron Hubbard let her in on their secret. They had opened a hole in the sky, a hole in space and time, and something or many things had come through it. Jack Parsons died in 1952, allegedly from an explosion in his home laboratory. By the end, he had been betrayed and abandoned by both his rocketry peers and his magical lodge. L. Ron Hubbard found success as a science fiction writer and eventually as a prophet with his own religion. And Marjorie Cameron lived a long life as an artist and underground muse of the occult scene in Los Angeles. Instead of building spaceships, by the end of his life, Jack Parsons, an expert chemist and inspired alchemist, was making explosives for Hollywood movies. But NASA and JPL and human spaceflight and even the Cassini mission to Saturn do not exist 
on our timeline without the rocketry genius of Marvel White Said Parsons, the pioneer we know as Jack Parsons. Speaking of Marvel, his given name, if you look at his photographs today, especially the famous shot taken in 1941, this dashing, goateed, rocketry, and chemistry pioneer may well remind you of the Marvel Comics character Tony Stark. The broken-hearted businessman, chemist, and rocketry pioneer who becomes the Iron Man is drawn by the legendary Jack Kirby, who had his own direct connection to the great old gods of space and time. And Jack Parsons will surely bring to mind the Tony Stark as portrayed by the actor Robert Downey Jr. In those scenes of Afghanistan in 2008's Iron Man movie, they were filmed in the Alabama Hills, just off the 395 in the eastern Sierra Desert, the setting for hundreds of movies and television shows about cowboys and superheroes and space monsters. There's a movie history museum right there in Lone Pine I encourage you to visit. Another place you can visit, one of the eeriest places you can visit today, is a place called Rocket Sight Road, which crosses the old 20-mule team road south of Boron at the far end of Edwards Air Force Base, just west of Kramer Junction on the 395. There is a jagged, burnt-up mountain here, clearly visible from the public roadway, and it is studded with the metal hulks of old rocket engines tested by NASA and JPL in the military. The engines bolted to the rocks so they wouldn't hurl themselves across the sky. And there was a mysterious explosion at the Rocket Site Laboratory on September 7th of 1990. A mushroom cloud rose over the lab as lines of ambulances raced down Rocket Site Road. People who live along Highway 58 there were not told that the toxic cloud was hydrogen chloride from a multi-rocket and missile explosion. The poison cloud dispersed over the western Mojave. Now, Jack Parsons performed ancient and new magic rituals. Rituals of blood and skin and desert wind. He writes of the completion of this working in the Mojave Desert. In January 1946, I had been engaged in the study and practice of magic for seven years and in the supervision and operation of an occult lodge for four years, having been initiated into the Sanctuary of the Gnosis by the Beast 666, Brother 132, and Brother Saturnus. At this time, I decided upon a magical operation designed to obtain the assistance of an elemental mate. This is a well-known procedure in magic, consisting of the invocation of a spirit or elemental into tangible existence by various magical techniques. 
Jack Parsons says that the completion of this ritual was met with a massive windstorm across the desert. Once he returned home, there were electrical problems. The lights failed one night. Another magician staying in the lodge was struck in the shoulder by an unseen presence. Candles knocked out of people's hands. And several people in the Pasadena Lodge observed a brownish yellow light floating about seven feet high in their kitchen. Says Jack Parsons, I banished it with a magical sword and it disappeared. northeastern boundary of the Tohono O'odham Nation in south-central Arizona, there are curious structures said to be home to demons and late-night rituals. These structures are not part of the reservation. They are relatively modern on private land, in fact, having only been constructed in the early 1980s. In the upcoming autumn issue of Desert Oracle, you will find an interesting story of these domes by Jason Woodbury, long a resident of nearby Coolidge. We spoke to Jason, a talented music critic and well-known music and records man of Phoenix, Arizona, about his investigation of these strange space-age structures. They're off Interstate 8, south of Casa Grande. You can actually see them from the, from the highway. You get off on Thornton Road and you go south, and it turns to a dirt road right before you hit these domes, these structures that were erected in the early 80s. They feel older, they look more fantastical, you know, than, oh, these were some things built in the early 80s by a technologies company to build microchips out in the desert, which is what is established. They they are that. That's what it was. They were built in 1982 by a company called Intercom Technologies to build microchips. Probably provide jobs for Casa Grande residents and you know semi skilled labor and all, all that stuff. So, but they were abandoned pretty quickly on. They never actually went into operation. From the road, you can kind of see them off in the distance. You see the very tops of them. Because there's, you know, brush everywhere up around. There's trees and and stuff surrounding them. And then you turn off of the off the interstate. You go down this road. There's a couple trailer homes. Nothing, nothing much out there, you know. It's, it's fairly removed from Casa Grande proper. And you see them on your left side. Clear as day. They're these weird-looking domes. They look like something out of... Star Wars, they look like Tatooine settlements or something like that. There is a, a barbed wire fence surrounding them. They are private property. You can just climb right through that barbed wire fence. It's very easy to do. And a lot of people have done it, apparently, because they're they're tagged up, you know, just covered in graffiti. But they're weird. They're weird-looking, and there's a weird energy to the place. And when I walked through it, I actually took a... I took out my iPhone and I recorded me stepping through them. Because there's a weird ricochet pattern 
from your feet on the concrete. And it kind of bounces around in these dome structures. And they're a very strange place that, for a lot of reasons, took on like an air of local mystery. Local lore sprang up around the domes. So I grew up in Coolidge, which is a neighboring neighboring town. And it's, it's close enough, you know. Uh, and you'd hear just just random bizarre tales lots of tales about satanic rituals i think that we're talking you know the domes were fairly well abandoned even by the mid 80s so that's ripe for the satanic panic kind of movement where every space that wasn't completely sanitized or safe to be sort of took on this weird air of evil energies or whatever. So there was definitely a lot of stuff like that. People would talk about how there were sacrifices out there. People would talk about how they were haunted. People would talk about how there were uh, specifically demons creeping around the domes. And some of the graffiti plays into that. It's probably hard to say what's the cause and what's the effect. If somebody spray-painted a pentagram on there and then all of a sudden people started to get very you know spooky ideas about what the place was or if those stories started spreading and someone showed up and thought a place this evil deserves a good pentagram you know i don't i don't know which one it was it says 666 on one of the domes somebody spray painted that and and there there are all these rumors of people going out there to sacrifice chickens or sacrifice other animals and i saw no such evidence of bloodshed on my trip out there, but nonetheless, I mean, it, it just kind of circulates, you know, everybody talked about these places, these domes, as if there was a certain paranormal energy out there. And the otherworldly vibe of the, of the place, and the way these things look, which people will be able to see some photos in the magazine, but they, they do look like flying saucers landed in the, in the, in the desert. One of them has got like the traditional flying saucer shape. And the others are more rounded. Local lore just sprang up around people going out there to party. And they'd show up and there were people in cloaks there. Or people went out there to drink a 40 and there was a bunch of dead birds. All these things. People would just talk about these things. And I don't know anybody who... And nobody apparently took photos. <laughs> nobody documented it. Um, apparently the cops would get called out there all the time probably by residents of the mobile homes that are nearby because kids are out there partying you know what i mean that's that's what i think that's what i know happened out there was kids went out there and drank beers and just hung out and that was a really easy there was something about growing up in a place like coolidge or like casa grande pinal county there were all these abandoned spaces around the cities that took on this same kind of lore I don't, I don't think I ever went out to the domes as a high schooler to do anything to elicit. But, but there were other spaces like that. There was the coffin factory outside of Coolidge or the, or the bomb factory, which is what... And these are just things people called it. I always assumed that none of these things were what people had said they were. But it turns out the bomb factory, which was this space kind of out on the, the Gila River Indian Reservation... Um, that we could drive to taking back roads out of Coolidge. It turns out it was a real munitions factory. So sometimes maybe the there was some shred of truth at the heart of these sort of abandoned ruins that continued and, and people 
built upon or used to further their own lore about them. For the most part, I always found these places striking because they took on an air of mystery just by virtue of their weirdness, by virtue of their sort of being abandoned structures. Is there a is there a local monster associated with any of these places that has a name or a I don't know that there was a local monster associated so much with the domes, but I definitely remember that as far as these spaces around Coolidge, people talked about Hoofman, who was a man with cloven hooves. This was it, like you'd hear about the the Hoofman at the music, the munitions factory, or at the coffin factory, or just sort of out often associated with the spaces around town. So uh, the reservation, for the most part, and I had Native American friends who would tell me stories about Hoofman, who was a man with cloven hooves, and how you know you'd hear stories about how a man had gone into the the casino and had one big you know kind of walking from slot machine to slot machine winning big and and then he would leave and then upon collecting his winnings and departing people would re-watch the footage and you would notice that he had cloven you know cloven hooves in his in in just in the video footage you never noticed it when you were talking to him so so hoofman was definitely talked about a lot we had the, the the weeping woman was a big one too around the the canals. I think that's a pretty common one any place where you have you know Chicano culture or Hispanic culture, but like a woman who had drowned her babies for some reason in her youth and now she patrols the canals, you know, crying out for these children. That was a really popular one around town, and you'd hear that because you'd have to cross you'd have to cross over the the canal to get out to these spaces. So talk would turn to La Rona, is what they'd call her, you know. It wouldn't be hard to scrounge up somebody who would tell you that on their way out to the coffin factory, they they saw her, even this very evening, you know what I mean? So, There have been schemes to keep them standing, you know, and that's the thing that's probably, what, what probably signals their doom even more so than the fact that they are maybe structurally deficient. The biggest dome has collapsed, so you can kind of see out onto the the mountains facing the I-10 from this dome, you know? So there's been there's been just actual decay, and probably the vandalism has contributed to their kind of structural deficiency. But I think what probably assures their doom more than anything is the fact that nobody knows what to do with them. There is nothing to do with them. The owners have talked about selling them, Due to their unusual circumstance, they are worth some money, you know? There's something of value to them. The city declared in 2017, this, this, they declared that they needed to be torn down because they're a, a public hazard. The owner, Daniel Peer, has appealed to the city to try to keep them up, but I think what really ultimately dooms them is that nobody has any idea really what use they could provide or what they could be used for. They would probably require substantial repair to be used for anything official or in any official capacity. Eventually, they'll be torn down because nobody else knows what to do with them. I tend to think that these things have an artistic value. Um, And maybe that comes from being a kid who was raised in Pinal County, where we didn't have... I mean, you know, there there was a library, obviously, and there was maybe like a like a city city hall with maybe some sort of monuments or some sort of historical record. But really, these things strike me as being... 
their own form of outsider art, you know? And, and I, I sort of feel like they should be, be venerated as an example of what happens when there's people around who, for whatever reason, assign value to a thing. And the kind of value that's assigned is mostly curiosity. It's, most, it's mostly local mythology. But people feel strongly about them. I mean, when, when I posted on my Facebook page they were going to be torn down, people were bummed out. You know, they're like, no, they can't tear them down. Nobody has a good idea what you should do with them. But people do care about them. They symbolize something. I think they symbolize a certain kind of weirdness that takes root in desert communities, a certain kind of outsider quality that that just really feels... It feels magical because we decided that it's magical. They are valuable to us because they're there and because they're weird. My name's Jason P. Woodbury. I'm a pop culture writer and music journalist. I write for Aquarium Drunkard and co-host the Aquarium Drunkard Transmissions podcast. And I come from Phoenix, Arizona. announcements. Well, this is a big one, and I do hope you will mark your calendar. November 16 at 6 p.m. on Free Museum Thursday at the Sublime Palm Springs Art Museum. We will be presenting Desert Oracle Radio live in the lecture hall. This is the first time we are attempting such a feat, and by we, I mean not only your Desert Oracle host, but also Doc Daniels of Mojave Phone Booth Infamy, and Brendan Mays, who you know from his frequent baffling phone calls to this program, and other special surprises make a night of it enjoy downtown palm springs at the very nicest time of year a cool autumn evening and we meaning i will present desert oracle campfire stories in person at the ace hotel and swim club in palm springs on thursday october 5th 7 p.m at the commune fire ring free and open to all again on thursday november 2nd and again on wednesday night december 13th all at 7 p.m As for me, I will appreciate every blessed day and night from now through the perfect season of fall, the cold and sunny desert winter, the wondrous spring, for this is the good time of year in the high desert, the best time of year. This program is brought to you by Desert Oracle, the pocket-sized quarterly journal of the American desert. Become a subscriber today, and I will mail you four delightful issues. Send $25 by check or money order to Desert Oracle, P.O. Box 1735, Joshua Tree, California, or subscribe online at desertoracle.com. Get the podcast of this broadcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and tune in the radio app that turns your $1,000 cell phone into a somewhat reliable $10 radio. I do enjoy your letters and tweets and other forms of communication. I encourage you to drop us a line, radio at desertoracle.com. Have an idea for the show? Would you like to be on the show? We are open for suggestions, Desert Oracle Radio can be heard on KCDZ 107.7 FM, Fridays. 10 p.m. is the promised time, but your listening flexibility is appreciated. Heard from Amboy to Zizek's and across the great Mojave wilderness. And good night from the voice of the desert.